Good evening, fellow pilgrims, and welcome to our last screw tape class. It has been a long time since that first class, and I have so thoroughly enjoyed being with you. And as usual, we've got some music playing. I'm going to be quiet and let you listen. Some of you should know what this is, but I'll be interested to see if anyone has any idea why I picked this one for our last class. guesses on what that is or why we might be listening well it is a pretty well-known piece of choral literature called if you love me keep my commandments and is by that great Anglican church musician Thomas Tallis who held many of the prestigious positions uh, in the church back in the uh, late Middle Ages Renaissance period, uh, one of those being the organist choir master at Westminster Abbey. But there is a reason that I picked that particular piece uh, for this last class, and I don't know if anyone uh, might have a suspicion about why that is, but I will tell you that uh, it has to do with the title, uh, for one. If you love me, keep my commandments. And if you've been listening week after week, you will remember that we always end with a quotation about obedience from one of the screw tape letters. And that is one of the chief habits that can annoy the heck out of the devil if we are actually obedient to what the Lord commands. But the other reason that I wanted to play that is that the choir singing was the choir of Magdalen College, Cambridge. And that, of course, is the Cambridge College where C.S. Lewis finished up his career, moving there in 1954 and finishing out his career there. And he had a tremendous impact on Cambridge, uh, even though he wasn't there nearly so long as he was at Oxford. But Lewis lived at Magdalen College, and he was very close with the chapel and the choir because his room adjoined to the chapel. And there's the old story, which I think I've told you before, that Lewis wanted to make sure that the even song stayed on schedule and the homily wasn't too too long and so he would put his kettle on for tea in his kitchen which was uh, only one wall removed from the back wall of the college and if the service went too long you would hear the kettle whistling through the wall so kind of a fun story but I would like for us to begin tonight as we start this final class with a word of prayer. Please bow your heads. 
Oh Lord, we thank you so much for the gift of this incredible book, The Screwtape Letters. And Lord, we thank you for all of the thoughts and reflections that we have shared together over this pilgrimage. Lord, I pray that you would write in our hearts the things that are of your kingdom, the truth that proceeds from your word, and that we would not just have gained more knowledge through taking this class and studying this book, but that we would be drawn more and more to you, that we would worship you more, that we would be more obedient to your word, and that through your Holy Spirit, you would change our hearts that we might be more like Jesus. And Lord, that as we do that and we seek to follow you, that we would not fall prey to the schemes of the enemy and that we would live a boldly Christian life that would annoy the devil. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So for the last three weeks, we've been looking at Screwtape proposes a toast, and what we're going to do tonight is review that and then uh, do a very quick review of some of what I think are the more crucial points that we have teased out from the Screwtape letters. But before we do that, uh, let's say together that verse from Ephesians about spiritual warfare, which has undergirded uh, all of our study of this book. And if you have this memorized or if you have it in front of you, please say it along with me. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And to begin uh, and end in the same place, why study this book? Why does this book matter so much today? And I would suggest to you, these reasons that we've talked about every class are so important to keep in front of us as we finish up and as we try to build a framework for incorporating these habits into our lives. And the first thing is to understand the battle that we're in. We live in a culture that doesn't want to say anything is evil, that wants to say everything is all the same and it's just a matter of opinion. But the scriptures are very clear and Jesus is very clear that there is such a thing as evil and there's a battle between the forces of God and the forces of Satan. And so understanding that battle, understanding first that we're in one and then understanding what that battle looks like is keenly important. Secondly, lessons on thinking Christianly and developing a Christian worldview. 
as the world becomes a more and more complicated place, and as we veer farther and farther away from the traditional Western Judeo-Christian framework, learning to think Christianly and to develop a Christian worldview is something that is unbelievably important. As we try to process all the things that are going on in our world, knowing what the values and the truths and the key principles of the kingdom of God are that are rooted in scripture, those signposts are absolutely key to be able to make sense of what's going on and to know where we should stand on various issues. Thirdly, lessons on the psychology of temptation. All of us deal with temptation every single day. And when we understand a little bit more about how the devil is trying to tempt us, we can be better armed to withstand him. Fourthly, lessons on habits to cultivate to deepen our faith in Christ. We're going to revisit that topic again tonight, but it is one that is critically important for Christians, particularly in this time period of the 21st century. And lastly, lessons on living a boldly Christian life, lessons on following Jesus, learning what it means to be all about the things of his kingdom and abandoning ourselves to his will to be used by him for his gospel purposes. My friends, there is no greater adventure and no greater joy. And all too often we sell short what it means to follow Jesus by uh, playing church or playing Christian, having it be the side dish of our lives instead of the main course and the marinade that permeates everything. So, as we move along with this, I want to first uh, go over the habits from the past three classes from Screwtape Proposes a Toast, and then jump into a summation of some of the important themes of the Screwtape letters. So if you've got the toast out in front of you, uh, you might want to be ready to underline or star some things uh, to remind you. So from the first part of Screwtape Proposes a Toast, the first habit, beware of cultural mere routine that dulls you to kingdom life. The Screwtape letters talk a lot about the power of the everyday routine, uh, where we begin to believe that is reality instead of the kingdom of God. And we must not let mere routine dull us to the glory of kingdom life. Second, daily seek transformation and flee conformity to the social environment. Lewis says we're like jelly, that as soon as it falls into a mold, it takes its shape. Uh, and that's what he says to the mouth of screw tape in this toast. And it is so true. And we need to daily recommit and pray that the Holy Spirit would transform us. Thirdly, practice regular reflection on the direct, direction and fervor of your spiritual life. It's all too easy to think we've gotten on the train and we're on that gospel train. And since we're on that gospel train, it's just all good and we don't really need to think about it anymore. But the question is, did your part of the gospel train fall away and start going backwards down the tracks? And so for many of us, this practice of reflection is one we need to adopt 
to find a regular time period, monthly or quarterly, and maybe with an accountability partner, to think seriously about, are we growing toward Christ? Are we growing in faith? How is God using us? Asking those reflection questions, and I commend that tool uh, that we sent out for that. Fourthly, aspire to be greatly used by God. This is something that I think our generation has kind of lost touch with. I think that perhaps in the past, people aspired more to be greatly used by God. And now our aspirations are more likely to be informed by the world. And being greatly used by God doesn't mean being famous. Our culture equates greatness and fame. But the people that are great in the kingdom are those who serve. As Jesus said, anyone who wants to be first must be last and servant of all. But if we don't aspire, we don't abandon ourselves to God and pray that he would use us, we will get stuck in mediocrity. Fifthly, avoid celebrity worship and uncritical acceptance of celebrity ideas. We live in a celebrity-obsessed culture. Just look at the Kardashians, case closed. We are obsessed, and the problem is that we, because we are so jealous, perhaps, or we worship the celebrities, any pronouncement they make about anything, we are likely to take as true. And as Christians, we simply cannot do that. And then the habits from the second part of the toast. Live with compassion and biblical behavior toward others, using liberty for the cultivation of virtue rather than vice. Christians must practice what they preach. We must be loving and compassionate and love our enemies, respect all people, respect the dignity and worth of every human being, including those with whom we profoundly disagree. And we must use our liberty to cultivate virtue, not vice. Secondly, we must reject a merely cultural view of equality and practice and cultivate a biblical view of equality. Our culture wants to tell us that everyone is the same. Everything is the same. There's no such thing as men and women. There's no such thing as race. There's no such thing as any kind of difference in ability. We're all exactly equal. And the problem with that is it's manifestly not true. All you have to do is look around and see that people are not exactly the same. There's a glorious diversity in God's creation. And what we need to embrace is the biblical view of equality, which is an equality of opportunity, that all are made in the image of God. All are given gifts. All have a part to play. And no one of those parts is more important than the other. We need all of them. Just like the symphony needs every instrument, the body needs every part. And that equality is glorious. And it is glorious in its diversity. Thirdly, root out envy as one of the most pernicious sins. The mere fact that the grass is always greener is probably the most well-known proverb in our culture, and the whole idea of keeping up with the Joneses uh, is a cultural icon, tells us that envy is a major, major problem. And as Christians, we must be free of envy. We must model being free of envy. We must celebrate the gifts that we are given and not 
be jealous or begrudge what others have. Fourth, we must seek to develop biblical virtues and the fruit of the Spirit, even when the culture disdains them. The culture will tell you that if someone has hurt you, you need to trumpet your victim status, you need to demand compensation and reparations, and that you need to go after and seek revenge on those who hurt you. That is not what the scriptures teach. One of Jesus's principal themes is forgiveness, and forgiveness not only when people have repented and have begged you for forgiveness, but forgiveness even when people continue in their wrongdoing. Forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel. It is right at the heart of the Lord's prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And Jesus in the parable of the unmerciful servant seems to indicate that our forgiveness that comes from God really must inform our forgiveness of others and that if it doesn't, we may be missing out on God's forgiveness. Fifthly, pursue excellence in every endeavor. So often in our culture, the idea is just do enough to get by. Why bother? But Christians are called upon to be excellent, to do everything in a way that honors Christ, to be that street sweeper that does that menial job as if we were Michelangelo painting a canvas and to realize that no job is menial because indeed if we did not sweep the streets our cities would be full of filth and dirt and it would obscure God's creation and we would not be healthy street sweeping is vitally important sixthly pray for gifted unbelievers that they would repent and become agents of God's grace so often we see people who are what you might call militant atheists who are famous for their atheism and their disdain of God and their sinfulness. And so often we write those people off and wish that God would smite them if we're honest. But what we should be doing is praying for their conversion because God very often does convert those people. And when those people who have known the depths of depravity come to Jesus Christ, they can be mightily used for the gospel. Look at the apostle Paul that rests our case. Then from the third habit, the third part of the screw tape letters, uh, that part in which we uh, finished up last week told us that what we might think is the most important part of screw tape proposes a toast isn't, and that these last habits are particularly key for Christians. And the very last part of that third portion, you'll remember, Screwtape says, our best work is done in tempting on the very steps of the altar, something that should give all of us Christians pause. So the habits from that third part embrace a biblical understanding of gifts and talents that recognizes the needfulness of differences, that we understand that we are all gifted, we are all talented, but that our gifts are not the same. Just as in a symphony, the lead violinist has very different gifts 
than the person that plays the timpani. But they're both vitally important to those musical compositions. In the same way, all of our gifts are vitally important to the body of Christ, and we should figure out what our gifts are, embrace them, and use them. And just a little plug, if you've never done a spiritual gifts workshop to discover your spiritual gifts, please do that. Those of you at St. Philip's, we offer those regularly. Uh, we even had an online one during the pandemic. Uh, but I would encourage you, if you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, find out and then pray that God would help you use them. Secondly, from last week, foster a biblical self-esteem that's not based on status or accomplishments, but which is rooted in your identity as a new creation in Jesus Christ. This is so important. We live in a culture where the self-esteem movement has just gone completely off the rails. My nephew, long ago in California, attended a school that was a charter school for self-esteem. That was what they worked on all day long. And all it was about was you are great. You are great. You are great. You are the center of the world. You are the center of the universe. You deserve a trophy just for showing up. And then we wonder why we live in the most narcissistic culture in the history of the world. Biblical self-esteem is not rooted in anything that we have done. As the old hymn says, no merit of my own I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling. We have infinite worth because Jesus deigned to die on the cross for us. He shed his blood for us to make us his treasure. And that is where our self-esteem comes from, that we belong to him, not because of any worth that we have in ourselves. Thirdly, encourage and pray for biblical leaders. And in your own sphere of influence, mentor and model biblical leadership. And that has sort of a double meaning. People who you know, who are in leadership, who are Christians, pray for them. Pray that God would use them. But also pray that God would raise up leaders who are biblical, who know Jesus Christ. And then in our own spheres of influence, we need to be imitators of those who have gone before us, who have lived out their faith in Christ. And we need to invest in the next generation. Younger men need to be mentored by older men. Younger women need to be mentored by older women. And each of us should have someone we look to for mentoring, someone that we look to for accountability, and someone that we look to to mentor. Those three relationships will ensure that we are always engaged in active discipleship. Fourthly, reject mediocrity and pursue excellence. This is just like the habit from the second part, except that the rejection of mediocrity has to be so central. It is so easy to fall into thinking that good enough is good enough. And Christians must absolutely reject mediocrity and strive for excellence. Fifthly, embrace humility charity, contentment, gratitude, and appreciation to help stave off pride and an insistence on your own rights. In this part of the toast, Lewis, through the mouth of Screwtape, tells us that when we get people to think about, I'm as good as you all the time, and to insist on their own rights, that all those biblical types of behavior, 
humility, charity, contentment, gratitude, the ways of loving that point us toward the kingdom go right out the window because we're so obsessed with how we might have been slighted or mistreated by this person or that person that we certainly can't love that person or serve them. We just feel hostile all the time and are looking for ways to be offended. And my friends, that is the end of the gospel if Christians become infected with that cultural disease. Sixthly, keep foremost in your life the understanding that the salvation of individual people created in the image of God matters infinitely more to God than the fate of any political system or nation. This is difficult for us sometimes, particularly as Americans, because many of us love our country. And love of country is a good thing, but it must not get in the way of understanding that the gospel is more important. We have to look at Jesus's priorities and see Jesus spent all of his life on this earth focused on the two things that are eternal. And the only two things that are eternal are God himself and the souls of individuals created in his image. So we are to have those same priorities, to be focused on the gospel before and above anything else, to be focused on relationships where we are sharing the gospel and loving others as Jesus loved us. So I would commend to you to go back to that toast, uh, to sit down and reread the whole thing, maybe along with your notes, and uh, pray about what God might have you take away from that in terms of new habits. So switching back to the screw tape letters, I want to end where we began uh, with the preface. One of the things that is so interesting about screw tape letters is that Lewis did write several different prefaces to it. But I think that in uh, the preface that we spent our first class talking about, Lewis really nails some things that are critically important for us to think about that are part of building that framework uh, that I mentioned earlier to hang the knowledge and wisdom uh, that comes from the scriptures that Lewis has expressed in the screw tape letters. The first one of those is that scripture and scorn for the devil are so very important. You'll remember in that preface, Lewis quotes Martin Luther when Luther said, the best way to drive out the devil, if he will not yield to the texts of scripture, is to jeer and flout him, for he cannot bear scorn. We must remember that Satan was defeated on the cross, so he is to be jeered and flouted. But before that, he is to be battled against with the texts of scripture. You may have noticed that this class has sometimes seemed like a Bible study uh, with the screw tape letters as just an excuse. And I hope you've kind of felt that way because I think that would be exactly what Lewis would want. Because the whole idea about fleeing the devil and resisting the devil is that scriptural wisdom and scriptural thinking are the greatest defense against the assaults of the enemy. 
And one of the things that is so sad in our culture, particularly in the church, is the poverty of our knowledge of the scriptures. And we of all people are without excuse because there are fabulous resources all around us if we want to learn the scriptures. And a lot of it is that we just have to begin to take the time to be in those scriptures, to learn from them, to apply them to our lives, to pray before the Holy Spirit and ask God, is there some truth here that I need to apply in my life? Is there some truth about the kingdom of God for which I need to give thanks and celebrate? Is there some sin revealed by the scripture of which I need to repent? Asking those questions when we come to the scriptures will help us to drive out the devil, as Martin Luther says. And Lewis, in quoting this, says this is one of the main reasons he wanted to write this book, to help us understand how to deal with the devil. And scripture, the sword of the spirit, the word of God, is our chief weapon in doing that. And we must learn to not be flabby and out of shape in wielding that word of God. But we must embrace it, see it as the golden casket where gems of truth are stored, the chart and compass that o'er life's surging sea, midst rocks and quicksands, still points, O Christ, to thee. And then the second thing that Lewis says in that preface, which is so very true, is that Satan loves for us to fall into two equal and opposite errors about Satan and his minions. The first is to disbelieve in the existence of devils, to think that they're just that comical figure in the red tights with the pitchfork. No 21st century thinking person who's been to college, for heaven's sakes, could actually believe in the personal devil. I mean, really, how antediluvian to think that. But Lewis says, oh, no, no, no. Screwtape and the devil would love for us to disbelieve their existence. So we as Christians must be aware that we have an enemy, that he is real. The scriptures testify to his existence. They testify that he has been defeated, but he is still active until the end of this age. So we must be aware that we have an enemy and we must be on the lookout and as Ephesians says, prepared with the whole armor of God. But there's a second error that we can fall into that Satan is just as happy with, and that is to become obsessed, to, to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in the devil, as Lewis puts it. And this is kind of the idea of the devil is under every bush. Everywhere you look, there's the devil. Everything that goes wrong, there's the devil. It's like that old Flip Wilson routine. The devil made me do it. We see the devil behind every bush and we think that he is controlling every aspect of our lives. And my friends, that is just wrong, especially as Christians. The devil is not controlling our lives. If we are Christians, we should be under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Now, Satan is attacking us but he is not the one who is in charge. We are not to be obsessed with the devil. And then the third thing that Lewis says in that preface, which I think is so very true and important for us to remember, is that the devil is a liar. He is the father of lies. He comes disguised as an angel of light and that his deceptions 
are lies that trick us through rationalizations and what sounds like it might be a good idea, but there's that little check in our spirit. Lewis puts it this way, readers are advised to remember that the devil is a liar. Not everything that Screwtape says should be assumed to be true, even from his own angle. We as Christians would do well to remember those three things as we build our framework. Scripture and scorn for the devil. Secondly, the two equal and opposite errors of disbelieving or being obsessed with devils. And thirdly, that the devil is a liar. The next really important takeaway uh, that I hope you have uh, gotten out of this class is the idea of how unbelievably important habits are. As we said in that first class, I have taught screw tape many times before over a period of over a decade, and I had never noticed until I went through with this contrapositive approach of looking at what is Satan trying to stop the Christian from doing, what are the good things he doesn't want the Christian to do, that I suddenly saw what I think is the really the key to understanding this whole book, which is that habits, things that we have thought about, reasoned through, and seen in scripture that we then put into action are the key, not only for annoying the heck out of the devil, but for living the boldly Christian life. And I want to um, share a couple of quotations that we looked at very early on from that terrific book by Justin Early, The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction. And if you're looking for something to read, um, I would commend that to you. It is a terrific book. So the first quotation, we are all living according to a specific regimen of habits, and those habits shape most of our life. Habits form much more than our schedules. They form our hearts. I'm going to say that again. We are all living according to a specific regimen of habits, and those habits shape most of our life. Habits form much more than our schedules. They form our hearts. And I want you to just think about the difference in these two scenarios I'm going to share with you. Imagine that you wake up in the morning, you turn that alarm off, or you hit the sleep button and sleep five more minutes. Then you roll out of bed, you go brush your teeth, you brush your hair, uh, you might take a shower, you get dressed, ladies do your makeup, and then you go into the kitchen and you make some breakfast. And as you're doing that, you turn on the news and listen to what's going on. You check the weather so you know about your plans for the day. And then you make sure that you turn the stove off and you get in the car to go to your office and whatever your work may be. And as you are in the car, you think, oh, wait, I didn't really uh, spend any time with the Lord this morning. I'm going to pray for a minute um, on my commute or maybe listen to Christian radio. So that's good, right, that you're saying a prayer or listening to Christian radio. Contrast that scenario to this scenario. You wake up in the morning, and the very first thing that you do before you open your eyes or get out of your bed is you say a prayer of thanks to God and recite in your mind a hymn of thanksgiving to him or some scripture. 
And then as you roll out of bed, you roll out onto your knees and you spend a few moments praying the Lord's Prayer, giving thanks to God for another day of life, praying for those dearest to you, praying that God would use you during that day. And then you take a minute and you look at a scripture verse or two, and then you think about it as you get ready for the rest of the morning. And then you take some time and do some scripture study right after breakfast, and you go outside into God's creation for five to 10 minutes and thank God for the beauty that surrounds you ask him to open your eyes to behold him during the day and pray for those who are dear to you. Then you get in your car and go to your office. Now, both of those can be accomplished in the same period of time, but I would suggest to you that the second one of those shows how habits can form your heart. Because in the first one, God is kind of an afterthought all your other habits are coming first. But in the second one, there are deliberate choices made that enable you to change your routine, to focus on God first with your heart, your soul, and your body. That kneeling down is unbelievably important to remind you about who is in charge. Second quotation, we think that by rejecting any limits on our habits, we remain free to choose. Actually, by barraging ourselves with so many choices, we get so decision fatigued that we are unable to choose anything well. Since we're too tired to make any good decisions, we're extremely susceptible to letting other people, from manipulative bosses to invisible smartphone programmers, or I would add, what everybody else is doing, make our decisions for us. This rule of life is intended to pattern communal life and the direction of purpose and love instead of chaos and decay. My friends, when we reject all limits on our habits, we think we are free to choose, but we do become overwhelmed with the choice that comes when we think we are the center of the universe. And the result of that is that our lives become characterized by chaos and decay. But when we adopt habits of purpose, the kind of habits that Early talks about in his book that are drawn from scripture, and indeed the kinds of habits we've teased out from screw tape, those habits are life-giving. They are habits that form our hearts and point us towards God's kingdom every day not just on Sunday, but every day, so that we experience the joy and the wonder of living the kingdom life that cannot help but overflow out of us and to those around us. And then the last quotation from Justin Early, only when your habits are constructed to match your worldview, do you become someone who doesn't just know about God and neighbor, but someone who actually loves God and neighbor. My friends, it's so easy to say what we think our worldview is, but to have a whole set of habits that doesn't match at all. You remember there's that anecdote that Early tells when he came back from China, where he says he realized that the whole interior decor of his life 
looked Christian. What was kind of hung up around inside looked Christian, but the problem was the whole architecture of his life was the American success ethic. It's all too easy for that to happen to us. And so we have to reform that architecture, reform that worldview so that we can begin to see the truth and the beauty of the kingdom of God and live into it through these godly habits. So that brings us to some takeaways from the habits. And I would never want to say that any of these habits are less important than the others. Um, and there are a lot of them since we've had five or six um, in every letter, but you may have noticed that there's been some overlap. And I think that that is deliberate on Lewis's part. One of the things I will send out with the email this week is a compilation of all of the summary emails that I've sent after each class. So you'll have all the habits there in one place. And I would encourage you to read through that and pray over that. But tonight, what I've done is out of those uh, 150 to 180 habits, uh, I have picked 20 to just run through quickly. And I want to just say at the outset here that the idea here is not to embrace a new legalism, to be running around trying to check off all these habits every day, but to look at them in terms of reforming the architecture of your life. So I'm just going to comment briefly on each one of these. First, focus on eternals, what is true, what is good, what is beautiful, rather than the immediate stream of ordinary life and busyness. Set your mind on things above and embrace real pleasures that focus your heart and mind on beauty, truth, and goodness. This is so important. We are lazy about focusing our thoughts. And scripture tells us over and over again to set our minds on things. But what we do is we let our minds be filled up with all the noise of the world, the worries and cares of the world, and we become despondent as a result. So we must take the bull by the horns, embrace what is true, good, and beautiful, the beauty of the kingdom of God, and set our hearts there and on the beautiful pleasures God has made. Second, embrace Christianity not just as a theory, but by committing your life to Christ and being transformed. Christianity is not just a set of principles that we say, yes, I agree with that. Or, uh, as I said in the sermon Sunday, like the Doobie Brothers song, yes, Jesus is just all right with me. That is not what it means to embrace Christianity by committing your life to Jesus and being transformed. It is all the difference in the world. It's the difference between watching a game and being in the game. Thirdly, keep constantly in the front of your mind and heart a sense of wonder at God's grace and mercy in calling a sinner like you to be in relationship with him. My friends, this is so important because in the self-esteem culture, the narcissistic culture as Christians, we can start becoming Christian narcissists and think, well, I'm better than other people because I'm a Christian. Ooh, look at those bad people over there who are atheists. Or look at those people doing that sin. I would never do that. Well, Satan loves that. The important thing that we need to do is remember that there but for the grace of God, literally, go I. We are all beggars showing other beggars where to find bread at the foot of the cross. We must not ever be prideful, and we must uh, constantly seek to have wonder at God's mercy in saving us. Fourthly, 
Keep your relationships surrounded with prayer and the Holy Spirit. Don't let Satan get a foothold. Practice Matthew 18, which means go to your brother if you have something against him and avoid any root of bitterness. Christians who don't model this are one of the chief reasons that many non-believers don't want to have anything to do with the church because it's hypocrisy when there's all of this gossip and revenge seeking and judgment of other people we must practice relationships that model the love of jesus remember the great command love god with your heart soul mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself Jesus said that was the most important commandment. We would do well to pay attention. Fifth, avoid contented worldliness. Satan loves this. If you can just get us comfortable with the world and content with just focusing on our stuff, mowing our yard, um, making sure that our retirement fund's in good shape, and not worrying about the kingdom of God, just enjoying, uh, you know, our career and all of those kinds of things because we are successful um, that is the end of it in terms of our being boldly Christian we don't want to be contented in the world we want to be content at what God has given us so that we can be available to God for the use of his kingdom sixth dwell in the present refuse to embrace worry fear and anxiety for the future uh, what some people call awfulizing and this is what jesus talks about in the sermon on the mount in that section where he says over and over again do not worry as a commandment he says seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you therefore do not be anxious do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. My friends, in this time where there's so much that we want to be anxious about, these are life-giving words. Don't worry about the future. Trust Jesus. He's got it. Consider the lilies. Seventh, discipline your mind to be sensitive to sinful patterns of thoughts and temptations so as to avoid them while having a bias toward acting rather than simply feeling when it comes to acts it is so very important that we not just feel things we've talked so much about this in this class satan loves for us to get all worked up and to feel oh i need to do that i'm going to do that tomorrow i'm going to do this thing this is the way i'm going to shape up this is how i'm going to honor jesus this is how i'm going to serve others but we don't ever do any of it but we feel good because we thought about it listen to this section it is only insofar as virtues reach the will and are there embodied into habits that they are fatal to us says screw tape i don't of course mean what the patient mistakes for his will the conscious fume and fret of resolutions and clenched teeth but the real center what the enemy calls the heart all sorts of virtues painted in the fantasy or approved of by the intellect or even in some measure loved and admired will not keep a man from our father's house below indeed they may make him more amusing when he gets there my friends it is vital that we act on what we know as jesus said at the sermon on the mount the man whose house is built on the rock is the one who hears the word and does it eighth cultivate joy 
It's connected with music in heaven and surrounds the believer with a cloud opaque to Satan. Now notice this is joy. It's not happiness based on our circumstances, but joy based on who God is and what he has done on the cross, praising him. Ninth, flee from flippancy. Learn to recognize it and do not allow the devil's armor to attach to you. Flippancy, of course, is to be frivolously disrespectful, shallow, lacking in seriousness, characterized by levity, especially with respect to serious or sacred things. This is the disease of our age, and Christians buy into this all too easily. But Screwtape says, if prolonged, the habit of flippancy builds up around a man the finest armor plating against the enemy, against God, that I know, and it is quite free from the dangers inherent in any of the other sources of laughter. It's a thousand miles away from joy, it deadens the intellect, and it excites no affection between those who practice it. As Christians, we must flee from flippancy and be willing to embrace seriousness and love and real conversation. Tenth, Satan is much more likely to rely on a slow and gradual turning away than on spectacular sin. This is another great quotation from Screwtape. You'll say that these are very small sins and doubtless like young tempters, you're anxious to able, be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murders know better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope soft underfoot without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. My friends, we must be aware of those slow and gradual turnings, which is why we need daily transformation. Eleventh, commit to faithful attendance and involvement in a church. There is no scriptural uh, authority for this idea of me and Jesus against the world and we worship on the golf course. The golf course is beautiful. You can worship on the golf course, but you need to go to church. You need to be involved in the body of Christ. It is a non-negotiable if you wish to grow in the faith. Twelfth, cultivate good humor and kindness and flee peevishness. Cultivating good humor and kindness, fleeing peevishness, that desire to complain about everything, the desire to be characterized by finding fault and being picky about everything. Ouch, that hits close to home. But we must flee from that. Thirteenth, cultivate a family and home deeply infused with the love of Christ with beauty and agape love for others. Remember the impenetrable cloud that Satan hates formed over that girl's house because here was a family that loved Jesus, where the family loved one another, where they loved their neighbors, where they practiced hospitality, where there was beauty cultivated in the home and people came to that place and were ministered to by it. Lord, make all of our homes be that place of ministry. Fourteenth, embrace the beauty and wonder of silence and reject being surrounded constantly by sound and noise. 
Screwtape says, music and silence, how I detest them both. One day we will make the whole world one grand noise. Well, let it not be on our watch. Let us cultivate silence. Let us cultivate listening to the beauty and wonder of silence. Let us reject constantly being surrounded by noise and let us embrace being able to hear the sounds of nature of God's creation. Fifteenth, beware letting your faith get co-opted by any cause which you may embrace. Now, this is not to say that there aren't good causes that Christians should be involved with, but we must be very careful of that slippery slope where suddenly the cause becomes more important and the faith that we have becomes merely a means to an end. We live in a culture where that idea of the ends justify the means, which used to be frowned upon, is now blatantly adopted by many public figures who think that lying and cheating or doing whatever, if it achieves a good goal, any kind of sin is permissible. And Christians, we must not let ourselves get co-opted by that. Sixteenth, avoid the horror of the same old thing reject the incessant quest for novelty. Be wary of adopting fashions, especially spiritual ones, that may blind you to the true dangers of your time. Resist discarding the wisdom of the past in favor of ideas whose only virtue is that they are new or progressive or innovative. Avoid embracing the fallacies of the historical point of view and deconstructionism. Seek proactively to learn from the wisdom of the past, especially Christian wisdom. This is something as Christians that is so important. And this is one of Lewis's major themes in this book that is a clarion call, a warning sign, a foghorn blaring in the fog of culture saying, wake up church. We are all too prone to do this, to reject the beautiful wisdom of Scripture, to reject thousands of years of understanding in the church and the church fathers and the disciples about what it means to follow Jesus in favor of innovative ideas that seem cool uh, because someone thought of them in the last two or three years. My friends, sometimes there are new ideas that are good, but most of the time, it's just a recycling of something from the past. Uh, even this great book, The Common Rule, Justin Early freely admits that he's trying to recover the wisdom that the church has lost from the past, the rules of life that characterize so many Christians for generations and generations and generations, but that we've thrown out. And the fact that people don't read old books anymore. It used to be that if you were educated in the Western world, you did read old books. You read Greek philosophy. You read history. I just was going through some old papers and found my college freshman history notebook from back in the late 70s. And it is a great reminder of how far we have fallen because I saw all of those great things that we read um, about civic virtue from the Greeks and reading about John Locke and uh, all of these people who were philosophers about liberty. And my friends, the sad thing is our current generation of students, they know nothing of any of this. 
And you know, sure, some of those things are not the foundations of the Christian faith, but they are natural revelation, if you will. They are things that God has revealed that are true, um, even through the minds of people who were secular. And then think about how we were schooled in the scriptures, or at least I was when I was a child, and that's gone from school altogether. 17th, be proactive in practicing positive virtue and do not define your faith in terms of what you don't do. And this is one of those things that those of us who are Southerners who grew up in the Bible Belt are particularly prone to do. We are, uh, sometimes it might be fair to say we live in the Judgment Belt where Christians look down their noses at those sinners and those backsliders because they smoke, they drink, they go to R-rated movies, they do all these things that I don't do because I'm a Christian. Well, it may be good not to do some of those things, but that's not what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is to follow Jesus. That's proactive. And following Jesus means loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength in a powerful and proactive way and loving your neighbor as yourself, which means practicing virtues, not just thinking about them or not thinking you're better than other people. Like that parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, I thank thee, O God, that I'm not like other men or even like that tax collector standing over there. And the tax collector is beating his breast, saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, the tax collector is the one who goes home justified before God. Eighteenth, contract the terrible habit of obedience to God in prayer and in all of life. Focus on spiritual realities that lead to joy and growth and refuse to embrace discouragement. Do not let the horror of the evil that men can do cause you to doubt your faith or to doubt God's goodness. Obedience is greatly underrated in our culture today. We grew up in that sort of 60s question authority idea, but the idea of obedience is one that has been held in reverence by the church for generations. Jesus commends it. And the problem with uh, most of us is that we think disobedience is not really such a big deal. And it may not cost us our salvation, but it will cost us our joy. Obedience to God is the thing that makes for a vibrant Christian life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer had some great things to say about this. And he, of all people, knew what it meant to suffer for the gospel, but that that obedience, costly though it was, uh, was worth every measure of it. Nineteenth, cultivate a profound future hope rooted in the joy and presence of Christ, where perfect love casts out fear. And this is a great reminder to us that when we come to Jesus, that there is a great future hope there that means uh, that we are going to be with Jesus. And when we understand that, it makes all the difference in the way that we approach our lives. When you have a future hope, um, it makes all the difference in the world. 
And then the 20th habit is to meditate and focus on the new heaven and the new earth that are promised at the end of the age. Because when you do that, you live into the truth of the book of Hebrews that there is a city not made with hands that is being prepared for us, the foundations of which are built with the hands of God himself. That that is what our destiny is. And that when you know that you are destined for that glorious inheritance, that fulfillment, the bringing back of the tree of life um, that was marred at the Garden of Evil, Eden, when we were banned um, from it after Adam and Eve's fall, all is restored in the new heaven and the new earth. And there's joy there. And that joy is joy that is everlasting, where God himself will wipe every tear from our eyes and we will need no lamp nor sun for Christ will be our all. And when we remind ourselves regularly that that is our destiny, it changes everything. It gives us motivation to live each day. It gives us joy, it gives us hope, and it gives us lots of ways to annoy the devil. So that brings us for the last time to that quotation from Screwtape Letter 8 about obedience. Our cause is never more in danger, Wormwood, than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. My friends, it has been such a joy for me to be on this journey with you. There are so many moments from these classes that I will always remember, and I'm grateful to you for all of your encouragement, for your hanging in there with perseverance on this pilgrimage through this great book. I pray that God will bless the time that you have committed to this, and he will use it to transform your spiritual life to help you grow more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the time we've been able to spend together in this class. And we bless you and praise you for C.S. Lewis and the Screwtape Letters and how this book helps us to understand what it means to follow Jesus. All these habits that are rooted in the word of God, Lord, that you have given us that can help us uh, as we seek to be more and more invested in the things of your kingdom. Lord, I pray for everyone who has been through this class, that you will use this knowledge, that we would not just pile it up as one more thing that we've heard, but that it would help us to build on a firm foundation by not just thinking about, but listening to and doing the word of God, that we might be drawn more and more deeply to loving you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And now receive this blessing. And now may the peace of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you and remain with you always. Amen. God bless you and good night.